Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I'm Aaron Cameron, and with me, as always, is Adam Pawatic. Today's episode is part of the Canadian Apartment Investment Conference in partnership with one of our best partners, Informa. Today, our guest is a gentleman by the name of David Allison who is the founder of Value Graphics Database and who is, has advised, I mean, he likes to be described as the human behavior expert. So before we get to David, one, I want to remind our, our listeners that Adam and I are going to do a digestion of the podcast afterwards. So stay tuned for the after show. Two, this is a little bit outside of my comfort zone. So hold on to the rope. <laughs> and David is a professional speaker, quite frankly. And so he's going to be driving this. But if you are bored of listening to Adam and I talk about the four major food groups of, of apartments and of retail and office and industrial. I want to hear something a little bit different outside of the norm, but still commercial real estate related. This is going to be a very interesting podcast. And so hopefully I set that up properly. David, thanks for joining. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me over. Nice place you got here. So David, I mean, we're going to try to follow our regular pattern of, of interview, but I expect we're going to get a little bit off topic just given your background and expertise. But why don't you explain what that is to our listeners and then let's keep going. So start with your background. How did you end up being a human behavior expert? Okay, before we even do that, I want to explain maybe a funny little noise you're hearing in the background. I live in a high-rise apartment in downtown Vancouver, up on the 21st floor, beautiful view of the ocean and the mountains and all this kind of stuff. Today is the day that they've decided they're going to send a window washer down the side of the building. So <laughs> right now, I'm listening to ropes. And any moment now, some guy's going to come down the side of my building and bang on the window. And so that squeegee, that. we'll know what that squeegee sound is. Yeah, then. yeah. <laughs> so just, that's a treat, special treat for everybody who's listening. Uh, so my background, I spent a long time in the real estate industry. I had a company that helped large-scale real estate developers all over the world. And what we would do with them is talk to them about who their audience was, who they thought was going to come to their resort development, their master plan community, their industrial complex, whatever it is that they were doing. And then we try and figure out how to sell stuff. For them. So we did the branding and the marketing and not the selling, but we did all the stuff that the sales team needed in order to generate leads so that they could talk to them and close them and get a lease or a rent or a purchase out of whatever it is that we're trying to do. Why would you ever leave real estate? <laughs> Why would I ever leave real estate? You know, I mean, <laughs> the Here I am talking at the Canadian Apartment Investment Conference next week, so I haven't really left real estate. But one of the things that came out of all that work was every project, and this isn't, this isn't just real estate, this is every industry in the world. The very first thing we do is we sit down and try and figure out who's our target audience. And we use the same tools in every company, every organization, for-profit, not-for-profit, all over the world uses the same tools. They sit down and say, what's the demographics of this target audience? And what are the psychographics of this target audience? And then we go and spend money and try and build products or services or brands or messages or whatever it is we try and do to appeal to that group of people. Well, this uh, kept us in how we did our work too. So we would do this and then we'd go and talk to these folks. We'd spend money and put up billboards and build sales centers and do websites and all these things that we got to do. And the cool thing about being in the real estate world is that there's a kind of a beginning, a middle, and an end. And it's all with, like, if you're doing advertising and marketing for Coca-Cola, it just goes for the rest of the time. With a project, it's like it starts and then it's over. So you can see what happened and, and get some feedback. And the feedback we kept getting was we'd go to the opening day and we'd see who was in the room and who bought the condo, let's say, in downtown Vancouver. And we'd look around and 
there wasn't anybody there who actually resembled the target audience we thought we were talking to. Maybe one or two, but there were all these other people who came for some reason who were way outside the definition of our target audience. So I was curious, but you know, it's Vancouver and it was real estate and we'd sold out. So we just did it again and again and again and again. And so when I sold my company about five years ago, I sat down and thought about this for a while. And I said, I wonder why, what kind of margin we're losing there on all that money we spend by not really understanding who's interested in this building and why they're coming here. Now, what's important to know is that that's about the same moment in time that there was so much talk about millennials five years ago when you couldn't turn on the television or read the newspaper without a story about how millennials like avocado toast and they're ruining another industry. And so I was sitting and looking at this stuff and getting fed up with it like everyone else in my previous book in the real estate business had been about baby boomers moving from the suburbs into stacked urban environments out of their single family homes and they become empty nesters. And all the stuff I was reading about millennials was the same stuff I was reading about boomers. All my research, the book, all the stuff I'd studied about boomers, the things that the millennials were saying were sort of the same thing. It's like, wait a minute, these people are way more similar than we thought. So we started doing some studies and we did 7,500 surveys across Canada and the United States and trying to figure out, could we build buildings? Could we make things happen in the real estate world for people regardless of age? And the answer was yes. All these folks came back. These were academically controlled studies saying they actually didn't really want to live in a building full of people the same age. Instead, they wanted to live in a building, and this is the key part, and would pay as much as 15% more than market for rental or ownership if they knew one thing. And that one thing is, I want to live in a building with people who see the world the same way I do. I want to share a building with people who have the same kind of perspectives on life that I do. They have all kinds of different ways of saying it. But what it did is ring a bell for us and make us go, wait a minute, what they're talking about is what their values are, what they care about. And so then we started deep diving into all these different fields of human behavior science, psychology, sociology, psychiatry, uh, neuroscience. And they don't agree on very much all these different fields of science. They don't agree on a lot. Scientists like to fight with each other, and particularly in academia, they like to point fingers and tell each other that they don't know what they're talking about. But these groups of scientists in the human behavior fields all agree that our values determine everything that we do. All of our decisions, our behaviors, our emotions, our reactions, fight or flight, everything has to do with what we care about. So that was an interesting moment because we went, this is much bigger than real estate. This is everything. Fast forward to today, and we've built this data set that allows us to tell you for any target audience what they care about. Because if you know what your target audience cares about, you can give them that and not worry about the stuff they don't care about. Pretty cool. Very cool. David, I'm going to be honest, I'm intimidated right now. This is way outside of our Ballywick or our, our, oh, don't our be knowledge of expertise. I'm just being honest. And I anticipate just knowing our audience, they're all intimidated right now too, because this is... Oh, so just ask me questions, man. Like, what's the top, what's <laughs> is it, off the top this of your is new head? This go. is fresh. No, no. So can you give us some examples? Real estate aside, forget real estate for, yeah, yeah. For, for sure. We'll get there first. Give us some examples of things that might just allow us to better comprehend what you're really talking about. Okay, I will give you a real estate example, though. We're working with the United Nations. We're working with major Fortune 500 companies. We're in global sportswear and retail brands. So this stuff applies across the board. But when I first started, because of my background in real estate, a whole bunch of my clients were real estate clients. We still do some work in the real estate world. 
So we were working on a tower in downtown Phoenix. In downtown Phoenix, if you're working on a condo tower, there's going to be a swimming pool. It's going to be on the roof or it's going to be out back and it's going to have those spritzer things to keep everybody cool and some lounge chairs and all the developers who are building condo towers in downtown Phoenix, they talk about their swimming pool in pretty much exactly the same way. They all say something along the lines of, isn't it going to be great to live here in this building? Let's call it Energium. That's the name of this condo tower, Energium. So you're going to live at Energium and every day when you come home from work, you're going to be able to go to our spa lake swimming pool and there's going to be lounge chairs and we're going to keep you cool with a series of misters and there's an outdoor fireplace. Imagine who you might meet, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Imagine who you might enjoy spending time with around your own vacation home that you actually get to live in 24 7, 365. It's like being on vacation all day, every day. They say something like that. So what we did is we use our data set and we figure out who's interested in this particular building that we've been hired to help with. And we found out that the people who are coming to this building, for whatever reason, we really never know why someone's attracted to one product, a building, a service, a brand, but they are attracted to this building. They saw themselves as being highly, highly creative people. Creativity was a huge value. And remember, we do everything in our world based on what we value. We care about something, we run towards it. So these folks are running towards anything that affirms that they're creative because they see themselves that way. It's how they move through their day. So all this developer did is talk about that swimming pool, same pool, didn't spend a dollar more. In fact, probably was able to strip away some of the extras and said things like, this is the swimming pool you come to at the end of the day when your mind is clogged up and cluttered and you need to get a refreshing start on whatever your next project might be. Swim a few laps, the endorphin will start to flow, and you'll leave here ready to tackle whatever your next exciting project might be. Same pool, but by knowing what the people coming care about, are able to talk about that pool in a way that's far more powerful than everybody else running around going, spa-like pool, going to meet someone, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. That's it. That's how simple it is. So to David then, along that same thought line, you're trying to motivate people into an action that benefits you and your business, and you're appealing to these people through their shared values. I've always heard it said that it can be boiled down to fear or self-interest is what motivates people. So of the two, this building is very secure. We've got a great security system, which appeals to their fear of home invasion or, or whatever it would be, versus as you're identifying a pool, which would be more about self-interest. Which one of those two tools do you find is easier to motivate people into the actions that you want? See, there's put another way fear versus self-interest, what that is, is running towards things that I already like and running away from things that might hurt them. So if family is important to me, it's in my best self-interest to choose things, feel things, run towards things that will enhance my family and run away from anything that might hurt my family. That's a really kind of broad statement, self-interest versus fear. There's actually 56 different values which depending on how you think about it, that's kind of not really very, very many. There's only 56 values, only 56 things that every human being on earth is either running towards or running away from. So if you know which of those 56 things your target audience has in common, there's going to be four or five or six of them that they all agree on. Well, now you know exactly what self-interest they're running towards or what fear they're running away from and why. So if they're self-interested in creativity, 
and somebody says, this building does not allow any kind of craft or art projects in the basement. There's no room for you. Do not think you're doing any painting in here. Do not, there's no, you know, none of that shit's going on. There's nothing in here that's going to allow you to be a creative person. Whether you say that out loud or it's just implied in the way the building is put together and marketed, those folks are going to run away. That's fear. And if you say instead, this is a building for creative people, we got a dirty room that you can go in and throw paint around and refinish furniture. We got a machine shop over there. If you want to fix up old cars and bikes, we got that set up for you as well. There's a dark room for your photography hobby, whatever it is you want to do. There's some flex rooms. People will run towards that. It's in their self-interest if they're creative people. But if they're not creative people, it's not going to appeal to them. So knowing which of those 56 values are in play for any particular asset that we might be talking about in the apartment world and the rental world is key because it's going to be different from one to the next. So I find this very, very fascinating and I apologize because my brain is spinning in a thousand different ways. Let me just set the table at least for, for the listeners. I mean, this is part of the Canadian Apartment Investment Conference for the real estate forums. And what David has done is really kind of, it's not necessarily what tenants want, but why tenants want it. What we're going to get into later in the podcast is just talking about the values that particular tenants want in the Canadian marketplace geared towards certain amenities that we seem prevalent. And we'll get into that. And I think we're starting to understand a little bit of your methodology. David, you had mentioned data sets. And I'm curious about just maybe just talk through without giving away your trade secrets, what your methodology is to kind of pull the values out of that particular base and how you compare it or match it against your data set. I'm curious where you get your data set and how that kind of works. And then after you explain that, let's get into some of the things you've, you've discovered about apartment renters. Cool. Yeah, this is great. I love talking about this stuff. So I'll geek out on data here for a little bit. You guys just please stop me if I get to go, if I go too much. Okay. So let's talk about the data set first, the benchmark data set. It's called the Value Graphics Database. It's the first one of its kind in history, in the world. And what we've done is measure what everybody on earth cares about. It's really that simple. Those 56 values that I told you about. We are accurate around which ones of those are the most important to populations in nine regions of the world, which encompass 180 different countries. There's five countries that we're not, don't have any data, like North Korea, a couple of others like that we couldn't get any data from. The rest of it is half a million surveys strong. We've collected 436 different pieces of information around what people value primarily, but also what they want and need and expect. What's really cool about this data set is it's not just like, wow, 500,000 surveys. It's the way the data was collected and the way we controlled who was answering those questions. If there's any statisticians listening that love this, it's called a random stratified statistically representative sample, which basically just means proportionately, it's an exact replica of the real world in miniature. So we have like our own little Lego model of the world that has the same number of men, women, rich, poor, African, Chinese, Spanish, Canadian, as the real world does. So when we pull data out of this data set, it's super duper accurate, plus or minus 3.5% with a 95% level of confidence, which is more than you need for a PhD from Harvard. What's it called again? Just say it. What's it called again? Just repeat that. it's, It's a fun thing. A random stratified, statistically representative sample of the population of planet Earth. In the research world, this is like discovering a new pyramid. The idea of being able to build that kind of proportionately representative sample, if you tell a statistician you've got a random strat stat rep, which is how the cool kids at stat parties talk about this, it's a random strat stat rep. If you tell them you've got one that's a thousand people, 
they'll light their hair on fire and run out of the room screaming because you imagine through old-fashioned research technologies how long it would take to get a thousand people that match the exact makeup of a target audience. You'd have a whole lot of surveys you'd have to send out and a whole lot of people who you're like, yeah, no, we got enough people like that. We need a few more like this. The phone calls during dinner where people like hang up on you, the emails you send out that no one responds to, the clipboards and the shopping, like those are the standard ways that research data is collected. So because of algorithmic data collection technologies that are available today, we were able to get a random Stratstat rep of half a million surveys. That's like, that makes anybody who's done any kind of quantitative research like this, it makes their head explode. So this is rock solid, super duper, incredibly accurate data set. Now, your second question, how do we get stuff out of there? How do we know for one apartment building versus another, or in the case of what I'm going to be presenting at the Canadian Apartment Investment Conference, how do we profile an audience like renters in Canada? How do we know where to look in there? It's a great question. So what we do is we go out and we find about 1,350 people, sometimes a little bit more, sometimes, no, it's never less. It's always at least 1,350 people and who match some kind of description. In this case, for the Canadian Partner Investment Conference, we found 1,350 people who are renters here in Canada. And that's a proportionate sample based on where people live in the country of Canada. So we asked them a few questions, just enough, about seven to 10 questions. And that's all we need to understand, oh, we get it. We know who you guys are. It gives us like a flashlight that we can use to go and look around inside our big bag of data and go, oh, it's those guys. And it's some of those guys and it's lighting up over there. And so then we can pull all this rich contextualized data that we have in the data set out that matches the stuff those 1,350 people told us. So it's, we call that an unlocking survey. So we just need to ask a few sample people of a particular audience of any kind of description and we get enough that it gives us a roadmap to go and, and you, figure out where to look around in the data. I, I don't want to know the 10 questions, David, but give us an example. Is it just kind of like, what's your name? Where were you born? What's your yeah, mom's maiden so, name? Like, no, like, what are the questions that come out? Come out of the oh. unlocking survey? Yeah, yeah, like, what are the questions that you're asking the tenants to get a sense of who they are? Oh, like, I to, see. To, to decipher their values, I guess, is what you're really trying yeah. to do. Right? Well, remember, regardless of who you are and what we're talking about, there's only 56 things you could possibly care about. So all we have to do is ask enough questions that we can narrow down which ones these folks care about. Because kind of like Amazon knows the next book you're going to buy because of the last six you bought, or Netflix knows the next movie you're going to enjoy because of the last six movies you watched. These folks just need to tell us enough that we can see it's sort of a physical algorithm, right? We can see the pattern, and then we can go into the database and pull out the lookalikes that we have all this rich contextualized data about. What would surprise us most out of the 56? What's the most obscure item that people actually do hear about? That always makes you kind of think. Well, I mean, there are things in there that are... Can you just list all 56 for us, please? (laughs) You know, I should be able to do that as a party trick. That would be a fun (laughs) thing to do. Backwards. Like, I should be able to do them backwards. Here's a cool little factoid. In every country, every region in the world that we've studied, there's always similar ones, pretty, not always, but frequently similar ones at the very top of the list in terms of what's important to that region and the world. So, for example, here in Canada, across the country, all people in Canada, the number one most important value to Canadians is family. The next one is belonging. So belonging is a value that's about just wanting to fit in. I want to be part of this. Here's what's interesting. In the United States, it's the reverse. Belonging is number one. I want to fit in. I want to be part of this. And then my family comes after that. So like every sociological data point, all that does is raise questions. 
I wonder why. And are we seeing the national character of Canadians versus Americans reflected in the fact that Americans, more than their family, are concerned about fitting in and belonging and being part of this? And yay, America, we're all in this together. We're number one. And I love my family. In Canada, we don't stand up and say, we're number one. That's just not a Canadian thing to do because the whole belongingness piece for us is secondary to the people who are in our immediate family circle. Now we go to the Middle East. I did some speaking there last October. I was in Abu Dhabi and Dubai talking at four or five different things that the Canadian consulate had set up for me. Interesting thing about the folks in the Middle East is they have family at the top of their list. So there's some resemblance to Canadians there. But across the world, we hadn't ever seen the second most important value in the Middle East. It had never shown up before. And in fact, in most of the proven social science tools out there, like the World Values Index and the Bhutan Gross and all this other boring stuff we won't get into, but this has never been recorded by enough people as being important enough that it rules their life, that it actually qualifies as a value, except in the Middle East. And so I got up on those stages and I had to say to people this thing that we discovered that no one had ever said to them before which is that family is the most important thing to you folks. I'm really, I'm glad because I'm Canadian and we have that in common. But the second most important thing here in the Middle East is morality, not religion, morality. I don't know how that sits with you, but that's what the data is saying. And then I went on to talk about whatever I was talking about. Afterwards, when you get off stage, there's always people who want to come up to you after and who are too shy to talk. And in the Middle East, it's kind of a thing. Nobody wants to ask questions. They just want to listen and then process and but I had people come up to me, women in burkas, where I'll never see anything but their eyes and men in full traditional garb. They came up to me and said, you nailed it. You nailed it. Family and morality are the guiding principles of our lives. We're taught since we are children, regardless of whether we're religious or not, that the most important thing is to do right by each other, to do the right thing in the right way and get to the right place by doing the right thing. I... Amazing. Just so satisfying to have something like that happen. Especially when it's something people didn't even realize about themselves necessarily, that you can, you can quantify it and identify it and it connects and resonates with a group. It's, it is remarkable work. If we're going to plug this into real estate, so you've managed to accumulate this, this high-powered data set and you're looking to convert it into actions for, for developers or clients in that space, Actually, we'll start with the opposite question first. When you're walking around, what do you see that the developers have gotten wrong in some of their communication and marketing towards their potential tenants? But you must walk around with a critical eye on a day-to-day basis and, and see glaring mistakes in terms of what you would have done otherwise. Let's start with what, what people got wrong, and then we'll go get to what we can do right. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, it's not just real estate developers. And you're right, I do have a critical eye about this because I spent all those years making all that marketing stuff. That was what my company did was write those headlines, name those buildings, put those websites together, build those presentation centers. That was my job. So I look at that stuff now and it's not that anything's wrong. It's that we're focusing on the wrong things. No one cares about features and amenities unless you can show them how those features and amenities are going to connect back to what they care about. So if someone cares about creativity, that swimming pool, if you talk to them about how that swimming pool is super creative and it's a great tool for a creative person, Now they're interested. If you just say, we got a swimming pool. They're like, okay, cool, whatever. So is the next guy. 
the opportunity that we're missing is with whatever we're going to do with our buildings, whether we're refurbishing older ones or repositioning ones in a different kind of market or taking new ones to market, is understanding the people who are coming. What do they care about? It's not whether or not we think our features and amenities are interesting. It's what are those features and amenities going to do for these folks? That's assuming you're already set or you're already built or you're already, your program's in place. There's no chance to move that. With the data that I'm going to be sharing at the Canadian Apartment Investment Conference, there's some stuff in there that you could use if you're planning your next building. If you now are going to know what these folks care about, why not? If creativity shows up, which, spoiler alert, it does with one of the segments in this audience, why not think about how you can put stuff in there that will make those creative people go, that's the building for me. It's not that there's anything wrong. I think that we're not taking it deep enough. We spent a lot of time talking about our amazing stainless steel kitchens and melee appliances and hardwood floors and all those sorts of things and not enough time talking about why anybody should care about that. So David, give us a plug. I mean, give us a teaser maybe for those that are still not sure what you're talking about. You would just kind of describe fitness centers as an easy example before we went live recording. Maybe just talk about what your research has discovered with fitness centers as it relates to apartment complexes. Sure. I'm going to share a couple of data points. We'll expand on these a lot more when, we, when I'm speaking. But first way we look at an audience is we always say, okay, these folks that we've just profiled, all of them, if we just not worry about if they segment into smaller groups, but just all renters in Canada. I'll tell you one thing that I saw that was kind of made me sit back and go, I wonder what that's all about. In Canada, as we've already discussed, belongingness wanting to fit in and be part of the crowd and not stick out and feel like I, I have some purchase wherever it is I am with who's around me. I want to walk into a bar and have someone go, Norm! And anybody who's too young to remember Cheers won't get that. But anyway, the belonging thing is massive. Well, for renters, it's only 52% of the rental audience that's interested in belongingness. There's something about people who are renting where fitting in and being part of the crowd is less important to them than it is to Canadians overall. So what do you do with that? I don't know. It depends on the building we're talking about. It depends on what your common area spaces are or what you think you might want to make your common area spaces about. It's still in their top 10. It's still 52%. That puts it at eighth place in terms of all the values that are important to all renters in Canada. But one question that any group out there who's trying to attract renters to a particular apartment offering should be asking themselves is, are we spending enough money or too much or not enough thinking about this notion of belonging? Now, remember, there's 56 values. And for this one to be number eight on the list means it's still significant, but it's far less significant than the rest of the country. So there's something going on there that bears some further conversation. You know, we talked about the 1,350 people that we use as a random Stratstat rep of Canadian renters and how we extrapolated profiles. We just talked about that one data point about belongingness being far less important than it is to the rest of the population. A couple of other quick points I'll tell you about everybody in general is security and personal growth, wanting to be a better version of myself tomorrow than I am today, are off the charts for renters. So you can't spend enough money on making them feel secure and then I don't know about this notion about personal growth. Again, it's going to depend building from building to building. What can you do? What can you offer that is going to make them feel like this is a place where I'm going to come and live and I'm going to end up being better for it personally? I don't know. But there's going to be some cool stuff that can come out of that conversation. Now that we know that's the thing they're hunting for, they're listening for, and that they're using to make every decision in their lives all day long, we can come up with some really cool ideas around that. 
So let's talk about some of the individual segments that we found inside this audience. So the stuff I've shared so far is about the entire, all renters in Canada, but they break up into, we'll call it four groups. There's one group, we'll just knock them out of the park right now. There's one group of people called the splinter groups. They're so small, there's like a percent and a half a percent and a quarter percent, and they, they make up a fairly large chunk of the overall, if you're thinking about it as a pie graph, if you will. But they're all so tiny inside that chunk that you can't really target them. You're going to get a bunch of them by targeting the other three groups, which are huge and like massive, juicy pieces of low-hanging fruit in terms of particular target audiences you might want to think about trying to satisfy or attract with your messaging. So the first group is roughly a third of the market, 31%, we'll call them. And I call these groups the Angies. This is a little trick I use if anybody who's out there is thinking about being a public speaker. If you're talking about target audiences, give them a name that reminds you of someone in your life that's kind of like that person. So I used to know this girl named Angie, and Angie was one of these folks. The best way to think about them, the sort of overarching idea about the Angies, this 30% of the renters in Canada, is that they're happy. They're not upset about this, but they're what I call a seeker. They're trying to figure out how they fit in not quite sure where I should be, what I should do. And this is going to happen at any age and any income strata. These are folks who, like I think about my mom, for example, she loves going and looking at show homes because someone may have figured out how to live better than she has. She has no intention of buying those show homes, but she's a looky-loo because who knows, I'm not quite happy with where I'm sitting at, but maybe maybe somebody else can, I can learn some stuff. They'll go to travel logs. They'll do, so that's at the older end of the bracket. As it relates to apartments, they're just like, mm, not sure, not sure exactly why they don't feel like they're settled and fitting in yet, but they're just not. This is the one where we've got a whole set of values we'll be going through at the Canadian Apartment Investment Conference, but the one I'm going to talk about today is creativity. This is the group that wants to be, sees themselves as creative and will run towards anything that validates the fact that they are creative people. Now, remember, creativity is in the eye of the beholder. You have a chartered accountant who makes $250,000 a year, who on the weekends takes apart old cameras, and that's for him, super creative. I did some work with a hedge fund on, on Wall Street at one point where we identified a group of institutional placement officers, big time investors from big, big giant funds. And these folks saw themselves as creative. And it turns out it was because of the mathematics. They saw this in, integral, interesting creativity in the math that they got to do. So creativity comes in all forms. Don't think about this as, you know, dancers, writers, poets, painters. It's people who see themselves as creative. The second group I want to talk about is 21% of the market. I call these guys Ben. Uh, the Bens, they're the same kind of seeker. They're like looking around, not exactly sure where they fit in, but they're not happy about it. First group, kind of like, oh, well, let's go see what's out there. This group is like, I'm not where I belong. I deserve better than this. I don't know why the world hasn't provided the way I want them to provide. I can't believe this crappy place I have to live in because it's all I can afford or all I can find. Does your uh, friend Ben know that you've called him this group? I know a lot of Bens. Believe <laughs> it at that. Uh, so this audience, one of their unique values, remember we'll go through a bunch of them again at the investment conference, but one of their unique values is social standing. Ben wants everything in his life to improve his social standing. He's an ambitious dude. He wants to be seen well. Now, Ben's probably going to have a little bit of debt as a result of that. He's probably overspent on some parts of his life because he's trying to make sure social standing is increased with every move he makes, every decision that he makes, every emotion he feels. 
people he decides to hang out with. It's all about social standing. And then the last group is Josh. And the Josh is about the same size group as, as Ben's, 21%. And these guys are also seekers. So we're getting into some nuances here. They're still looking around, trying to sort out what's going on in their life. But the way they manifest that is by chasing adventures to the point where in the extreme end of the spectrum for this particular group, they're only going to see an apartment. And one of the reasons they're perfectly happy renting is it's a pit stop. They're going to go off on an adventure for however long, and then they're going to come back and save some money and work. And then they're going to go off on another adventure. We all know this guy, right? We all know people who just work so that they can do the next thing that they're really interested in doing. So 21% of the people renting are Josh's and the Josh is one of their unique values. We're going to go into the rest, but one of the ones that I brought to talk about today is quite obvious is experiences. So let's talk about that fitness center question. If what we find out from the tenant preference survey the day before I speak at the Canadian Apartment Investment Conference is that fitness centers are on the rise. People want fitness centers in their buildings more than they have in previous years. Angie who wants creativity, she's going to want a fitness center that challenges her creatively and somehow better not just be a bunch of weights and a treadmill. She wants something she hasn't seen before. She wants something that's going to engage her mentally around this creative aspect of her life, this way she makes decisions and wants to find more creativity. The Benz, he's going to want this fitness center to be improving his social standing somehow. It better feel like a private freaking gym he wants a gold fob on the key that gets him in there. And he wants people to know that he gets to go to a private gym in his building. He wants it's all about how he looks to the outside world. And the Josh's, it just better not be a boring old gym that's the same. Ideally, we have classes going on in this gym. And every month, it's a different thing he's never done before. It's upside down skipping while drumming or something. I mean, some new thing that Josh hasn't had the chance to do is going to come into his building and keep him engaged from an experiential perspective. So that's cool. If you want to chase any one of those three groups, if it aligns with the brand for the building that you're trying to push out there into the marketplace, we're going to share a whole bunch of these values that'll help you. But the point that I want to make here is we go back to a few minutes ago, all these values are for all apartment renters all across Canada. So this stuff will apply to anybody who's going to come and listen, anybody who's listening to this particular podcast as well. This stuff we've shared right here, this is true for you. I can hear all the way from the future, two weeks from now, when I'm going to be speaking about this, someone's going to stand up and say, yeah, but you know, I have a building in downtown Toronto that's three times more expensive than any building ever built in the city of Toronto or in the country of Canada. And the people that you're talking about, they're not mine. Well, they might not be, but they're going to be in here somewhere. The analogy I always talk, I use here is like, we've just surveyed dogs and told you they break up into three major clumps and some characteristics and some values of each of these different kinds of dogs. If you're going to come to me and say, yeah, but I have an Afghan poodle crossed with a Shih Tzu. Cool. We're going to have to find what portion of this is most applicable to your particular audience. We don't have that ability in the course of a quick little keynote or a podcast with you guys. But to that point, is the goal, if you're undertaking a marketing exercise, is the goal to really zero in on one of those groups or to try and cue in on a few shared values amongst them. I, I think I might have lost track of the math, but I think that composes 70% of the market just between the three groups you identified. Yeah. So is it is the goal to try and just really zero in on one and just dominate that one sector, or do you look at a combination effort to try and get a cross-section? 
it's up to the individual situation and the people involved in that process to make that determination. It might be that one of those sectors that we've talked about is you're happy chasing 30% of the market and Angie sounds like your people. And it sounds like it matches up really well with what it is you're already building or already have half built or already are in the market with. Then cool, go chase the Angies because the data for Angie is going to be very specific to her. When you blend all three of them together, it's watering down each one. And so you end up with this blended approach, but broadens the number of people who could potentially be interested if you can find a way to satisfy all of their values. So it's case by case. You have to sit down and talk about this and connect the dots between what you've got and what these folks want. And you got to put those things together. There's no blanket answer. And then I know that real estate, the residential side is considered more of an emotional experience. And on the commercial side, it's more of a math equation. And I know that you're prepping for the apartment conference, which would be residential firmly, but I know you have a background in real estate. So I feel confident asking you for something like commercial real estate, where it is a bit more of a, you know, a math equation or a a rationally driven decision, as opposed to a lot of emotional elements, does this apply as much? It absolutely does. Human beings are neurologically hardwired to make every decision in their lives based on what they care about the most. It doesn't change when you walk into the boardroom. It doesn't change when you go to the cottage at Muskoka. You're still the same human being with the same set of values. The way you apply those values may be different from one situation to the next, but just as we discussed around one apartment to the next might be a little bit of a different answer based on what's going on and what it is we're talking about and what's appropriate for the market and you're not going to be in a small town in northern Saskatchewan and answer any question around attracting people to a rental product in the same way as you would for a product in downtown Toronto. It's going to be different, but the same values will apply. Same thing with any decision that any human being makes. So if somebody's being asked to decide purely from an investment perspective around one play versus another, and one of them feels to them somehow, like assuming all things being equal, they're not going to do this based on it being a bad investment. You've got two great investments in front of you, two great opportunities. How are you going to pick one? What's well, going to have something to do, and even the fact that you're looking at those two out of the 4,000 you could be looking at, has something to do with your values because it's the only way humans make decisions. You're going to be using your values to parse any information that comes at you in any situation because you're human. I'm sorry if putting on a tie and getting a fancy title on your door makes you think you're a robot, but you're not. You're still a human being. I am not a robot. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> you know, David, this is great. We're going to wrap up shortly. Value graphics database, right? So it's not real estate specific, but clearly you've got a real estate background and you now you've done this survey from apartments. I think we've covered it enough, I think, to just plant a seed in people's minds. And if they want to know more, you can catch David on September 16th, the Wednesday in a couple of weeks at the Canadian Apartment Investment Conference. I'm going to shift a little bit, David. Maybe this is sort of the last question, just for you to kind of give us a story. What is the most interesting, bizarre, unique thing, exposure you've come across as you've been using this data set that you've got and performing surveys and through your methodology? What's the weirdest thing? I'll give you a second. I'll ramble on while you think about it. You were talking about rubber salesmen and things like that. What's the coolest thing or the curious thing that you've kind of come across in this business? Well, I want to give you two answers. The first answer I want to talk to you about is just to dive a little deeper into something I touched on a moment ago, which is some of the work we did on Wall Street. For one reason or another, guys who run big funds 
hedge funds, private equity firms. They're running around looking for investment dollars from the institutional investors. And they're math guys. So you know, marketing is a black art because it's pretty subjective. But when they hear that there's 500,000 surveys that can help them figure out what kind of stuff they should be saying in order to attract the people they want to attract, they get pretty interested because now it's data. It's not just some guy coming in and going, hey, this is what you should say and the institutional investors will do what you want them to do. Well, they wouldn't believe that we were able to get that little unlocking survey to happen with institutional investors because those guys are behind the walled garden, right? There's like seven layers of secretaries and assistants and stuff around those decision makers who are placing 10 million here and 10 million there. And every fund in the world is jumping up and down and saying, pick me, pick me. So we did a little test. Said, okay, let's see if we can get these guys. Give me 10 questions that I don't even want to know if there's real words in there. And needs to be so full of jargon, so full of technical stuff that only the people you're really interested in understanding would be able to answer these questions. And sure enough, they produced these 10 questions about hedge derivative, invincible, something, something. I, I had no idea what they, these questions even meant. So we sent them out using our standard methodology and we just did 100 people just to see what kind of results we get. We went back with the answers because I couldn't even score them because I didn't know what this meant. And it turned out we got nine out of 10 correct, which they were impressed with. And I was like, well, it's 10% wrong. My database is supposed to be plus or minus 3.5%. They said, no, no, we threw a trick question in there that you could answer in two different ways. So you actually scored perfectly. Let's get down and get some data and let's go to town here. So these quant guys on Wall Street bought in as soon as I was able to prove that we actually can profile anyone in any kind of situation. So there's one really cool story. And the other one is, something I'm very, very proud of that's just started happening for us. This product, this research database has always been about trying to make the world a better place. As corny and almost a cliche as that sounds, we have the ability to get large groups of people to do good things. So we take the money that we earn from corporations and doing good work with those guys to help them target their audiences better and understand how to get people to do what they want them to do. And a big chunk of that goes to the pro bono, not-for-profit stuff we do. And I've always had uh, big fancy dreams about this. So in the last few months, it's been kind of a bucket list thing for me that the United Nations Foundation has started using our data to target some of the folks that they're trying to influence for various purposes around the world. So it's uh, under the umbrella of their humanitarian work. The first thing we're starting with is a program that everyone should support called Nothing But Nets. And this is a group that underneath the United Nations Foundation umbrella, these folks raise money to buy mosquito nets, which cost five bucks for a mosquito net. They give these mosquito nets away in countries where they're needed. And families can sleep under these and not be bit by a malaria-bearing mosquito, which is the number one cause of malaria infection still around the world today, which is insane to me that for five bucks, you can save a family's life. So I'm so excited that this data is going into helping them fundraise and buy more mosquito nets and save a whole bunch of people's lives. That makes me pretty excited when I wake up. The application of the data is almost as interesting as the actual data itself. And it is very cool the way that you managed to apply it to so many different facets in life. I've got one last question. It might be not, not be a fair question because we just met and you don't know us that well. But if I'm trying to motivate Aaron and given what you know about him, he's a <laughs> podcaster. He's in finance. He's a family man. So if I'm trying to motivate Aaron, what should I do to target Aaron? 
Well, you know, Aaron, you and I are going to have to have a glass of wine. Uh, <laughs> but I'll tell you what happens. After you've been working with this data for a while, you start to see patterns. In fact, in my book, which I'll do a shameless plug for with the disclaimer that I make about a buck a copy if you buy it on Amazon. So everyone listening is going to have to go buy a dozen copies. I might have enough for dinner tonight. Oh, well, we got more listeners than that. Okay, okay. okay. I mean, we have enough for, for two dinners and that bottle of wine we're going to have. That's so going to be Chateau Petrus, right? I mean, we're going to... We're going to um, so in the book, the 10 largest archetypes are discussed. The 10 biggest similar tribes, if you will, that we found in the data set for Canada and the United States. And there's a little quiz you can take where you answer 10 questions. You can give this quiz out to your customers. This is a free way that you can start to use Viographics data, or free. It costs 14 bucks or 15 bucks or something on Amazon. Take a little quiz. It tells you which of those 10 chapters is the most appropriate for the audience that you're trying to understand. And it starts to give you some really basic directions. Now, think about there's 56 values, all the different ways they could combine and recombine. There's potentially hundreds of thousands of groups inside this data set. These are just the top 10. So it's like playing the piano with your fists, right? You're playing the right instrument, but it's just not very elegant or pretty. But having got so familiar with those top 10, I can now go to a party and talk to someone for 10 or 15 minutes. They drop a couple clues. I ask a couple questions. And I can pretty much tell which of those 10 groups they fit into. So, yeah, we've been talking to Adam and I for an hour. Which ones are we? I didn't get to ask you the right questions, though. I didn't get to ask you. So no, I will. Just, let's just, try. Just, let's see. Let's see. No, no. Let's see how I do. Let's see how I do. Who am I going to pick on? Go pick on Adam. Adam. Okay. Where are you right now, Adam? Well, actually, you already identified earlier in the podcast. I'm, I'm at a cottage in Muskoka. A cottage in Muskoka. And is this your cottage? No, it is not. It is uh, in-laws. Your in-laws. Okay, cool. And you're up there with your whole family? Yes. Yeah, I got two kids and a wife. And you go there a lot? During COVID, I've practically lived here, but regularly in, in normal times, I do go here quite a bit. And are your in-laws with you the whole time you're up there, or do you get to go on your own sometimes? A mix of the two. And honestly, now, your in-laws aren't listening. How much do you enjoy spending time with your in-laws in a larger family? This is, this like is awesome, by the way. <laughs> this is awesome. Keep going. Well, I, I can guarantee that they're not listening, even though they are in commercial real estate, but podcasting is not in their world so much. I quite enjoy it. I mean, I, I'm a family-driven person. I like the large gatherings. I like the 15-person dinners. I like the uh, sitting around late at night. I like all of it, to be honest. I'm a very extroverted person. Cool. And then what did you do before you got into real estate? I worked for an online casino. The marketing department, actually, I probably could have talked to you back then about uh, some tips and tricks. Yeah, yeah. I love doing this stuff uh, digital because you get really great feedback loops. Tell me a little bit about when you were in college before you started getting settled down and all that kind of stuff. Were you, did you do any amazing trips? Did you do anything like remarkable or would you just sort of go to college and get your degree and carry on with your life? Yeah, I'd say the latter more than the former. Maybe at the time I didn't appreciate how life changes and you don't have, I had plans of, of large trips and then it's kind of focused on life instead and never made it happen. And when did you meet your wife? I met her 13 years ago. Wow. So you were like 15. <laughs> I'm 42 now, so I was, uh, I guess, 28 at the time. Yeah, does that make sense? Yes. <laughs> okay, so so that's really young to chosen someone and ended up marrying. Yeah, well, actually, to be honest, we had kids first, waited a couple of years, and then got married. We did the out-of-order routine. Yeah. Okay, cool. So I'd like to ask you a bunch more questions, but we're going to bore the crap out of everybody listening. But here's my best guess so far. I'm going to say that you have a strong streak of loyalty in you, that you probably collect something. You may not even realize that it's a collection, 
but there's something in your life that you like to have around you that represents some of the things that are important to you. Am I getting anywhere near you? I collect wine quite a bit, yes. (laughs) I'm going to say that you are also probably pretty much a guy who likes his routines and processes and that it kind of throws you for a loop a bit when they get knocked off, when you have to suddenly, in the middle of something, change plans and do something in a way that you haven't had to do it before. I literally spent the morning talking to my uh, career coach about that very topic, about what a creature of habit and routine I am, and I do not like variations. Cool. You didn't date a lot before you met your wife. Not a lot. I had uh, some consistent girlfriends, which occupied most of my you know, 18 until I met her. So it just would have been a handful only. And you're very, very, you've got some really tight friends around you, a small group of people, and you'd throw yourself under a bus for most of them. It's a short list, but it's a powerful list. Okay. So you are a classic member of what we call the Loyalist Lodge. I'm going to tell you, you also have a favorite restaurant and a favorite chair in that restaurant, a favorite thing in that menu you like to eat. You don't want to vary from that too much because that would be like taking a chance on something new. It's not part of your routine. Crabs Benedict at the Fairmont Pacific Rim in Vancouver. Okay, uh, we, I, can, I can pretty much tell you the rest of your life story now uh, uh, if you want to know. So that's how powerful this stuff is. Because okay, do, wow. me, do me, yeah. do me, do me, do me. Because you know these things, this is back to what the unlocking survey is all about, right? Because we know a few things about this group of people, we pretty much know after looking at half a million surveys from people that, okay, we know it's these guys. And if this is happening and that is also present, then this is going to be the case. We only need to know nine, 10 things about someone. And suddenly we can start pulling out the stuff out of the database that makes sense. So there's a good That's very cool. I'm glad that worked. Yeah. Well done. It nailed it. It was, it was, <laughs> that was excellent. <laughs> well, I, I don't know if the podcast would get much more interesting in that than watching you identify me from five minutes of questions. So I got, I got to thank you for the personal insight and also for coming on the podcast. To remind our listeners, that is September 16th. David is giving the keynote at the Canadian Department Investment Conference. We'll put a link in the show notes to both his book so we can get him that dollar per book that he's uh, hoping for and also to get tickets for his speaking engagement as well as many other speakers over two days coming up on the 16th and the 15th is the first day. David, thanks a lot for coming on today. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Up next, there is the after show where Aaron and I will digest this entire episode. I got to take a breather to, uh, you know, to get over the fact that I was so easily identified by, by, by an expert, though. We want to thank uh, First National for powering the podcast, and we want to thank the Canadian Real Estate Forums for, of course, arranging our interview with David today. Once again, thanks, David. All right, welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast after show. That was interesting, hey? Wow, that was different. You know, it's funny, as, as we were getting into it, I was thinking, you know, how many times have we asked a guest in the last six months, whether it's podcasts or the webinars that we do for Informa, about raising capital or deploying capital or investment strategies or how's the retail market looking and, or what do they see happening pre-COVID or post-COVID? Like we ask a lot of, sometimes we struggle trying to not have the same conversation over and over again. And, that was completely different. Yeah, oh, for sure. It's uh, content we've not even come close to, to broaching before. It was super interesting. I mean, obviously, it's tough to cover. There's a lot going on there in terms of trying to get applicable knowledge. But 
for a half hour primer on what he does. That was very cool. And of course, with the so easily identifying <laughs> for soul reading me so effectively. You're, it's, clearly uh, an op- you're an open book, Adam. You're clearly an yeah, open book. Yeah, it shows that there's, uh, there's definitely something to it. Um, yeah. Well, he didn't say it specifically in the podcast, but as we were kind of prepping before we hit record, I mean, he talked about it being it's deep rooted in scientific truths. Like this is not wishy-washy science or this is not gut instinct stuff. Like this is hard-coded science, which I think some people have a hard time wrapping their heads around, but he kind of proved it with his <laughs> quick digestion of who you are as a, as a, as a human being, right? Yeah, no, I'll admit it was, it was remarkably, remarkably spot on. Like it, it all connected and resonated in a, in a large way about who I am. Anyway, some of the more interesting ones is identified early on, and we probably should have questioned it more too, was a 15% more rent if it's a property that speaks to you for the shared values. And I got to think that if there was a building that could connect with me the way he just identified, I'd probably pay 15% more in rent. And that's a significant money. That is, you know, considering what landlords do to try and bump rent up, you know, three, 4% annually, 15% is a remarkable number. You're absolutely right. And I think this is opening up a bit of a Pandora's box as far as apartments and condos. I mean, it's for the Canadian Apartment Investment Conference, but like who's getting who? This, this would be heavily applicable for condo sales as well. And if you were able to tap into that, quite frankly, that buyer or that renter psyche just a little bit more, have a little bit better understanding of what they want, what they need, and how to communicate that to them. And therefore, you're going to get 15% sounds like a lot to me. Shoot, if it's 3% more, I mean, it's totally worth the energy and the effort to go through David's methodology. Yeah, 3% more, and then you apply a Vancouver cap rate, you know, where he lives, and that's a lot of money all of a sudden. That's a lot <laughs> of money. Yeah, absolutely yeah. it is. For those that didn't have a pen and paper, randomly stratified statistic representation and random strat stat rep. <laughs> I, just, I can't wait to drop that at a party when I finally... Someone says, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm in, you know, data research. Oh, yeah? You do a random strat stat rep? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're going to butcher it. I think in the moment, I think you're going to butcher yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, likely a couple of drinks deep for sure. Yeah. So, so Aaron, if we're going to do some self-analysis on you, of the three that you identified, the creative, the experiential, or the social ambition, did any of those resonate with you? You know, our, our podcasters. I don't, I, don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I'm a weird one, though. Remember, I grew up with a, I'm a figure skating cheerleader turned commercial real estate exec. I don't necessarily fit in any particular box, but I'm sure I do. I'm sure he'd, he'd ask me five questions and be, no, 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 you're this. However, I mean, he did say, if you think about that pie, he was trying to identify that, you know, think of a pie chart. There's like 30% or 40% of people are in these really tiny, unique components. And there just happens to be three major ones that make up sort of you know, 60, 70%. I don't know. I, I don't think you fit in one of those three. You were, you clearly were in a, I can't remember what he called you, like an extreme loyalist or something. Like loyalist that. Lodge. Loyalist Lodge. Loyalist I wrote Lodge. it down. I'm going to Google it afterwards. That's, uh, yeah. But I, I think that your sliver might be a little smaller given. <laughs> yeah, the background. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, you're going to tune in for the Canadian Department of Investment Conference. I'll definitely be there. Yeah. I'll definitely be there. And I, I mean, I almost feel like I need to apologize to our listeners because like, I hope they don't feel like that was any kind of advertisement for the CAIC. I mean, it, it was really just to get David exposure so that people understood what he's done. But clearly, he can't tell us the secrets, right? So, Or a plug for his book. That was clearly not planned. It was totally just... <laughs> and maybe that's an interesting comment. 
you and I talk about it regularly, but we hate to come across as advertising for anybody. Like we really try to keep this as organic and conversational as possible, probably to a fault at times where we try to avoid plugging anything. But I love the Canadian Department of S Conference. Oh yeah, no, I'm not. I'm not, I'm not putting it down. Sorry, <laughs> Informa. I apologize, Informa. I'm not being negative. <laughs> yeah, it is a good event. So I'm, you know, happy to endorse it publicly on the, on the podcast. Uh, well, I, yeah, no, fair. And I and I just wish I could be there in person. Quite frankly, uh, I wish I could be anywhere in person. That's <laughs> to be yeah. honest. All right. Well, I think that's the end of our after show. My mind's still reeling from all of that. So I need to sit down and think for a minute. And I need to do it privately and quietly. So Aaron, thanks as always for co-hosting with me and fellow listeners. We'll see you on the next one. Yeah. Thanks very much. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.